Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. Uh, verse 36, Jeremiah 31, 36 says, If those ordinances, speaking of the, the sun and the moon, the light of the day and the dark of the night, he said, If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. He's basically saying that if the sun doesn't rise and the moon doesn't set and all those things are gone, that is more likely to happen than for me to forsake Israel and the Jewish people. That's God's promise to them. Um, So if we go to slide two, what's very important in understanding um, how this all plays out is Daniel 9, 24 to 27. In these four verses of scripture, probably the most important four scriptures pertaining to prophecy is given here. Um, 9.24 is a, Daniel 9.24 is a master verse in the Bible. It's like Acts 2.38 is to salvation. It crystallizes everything that you need to know about salvation in one verse, right? Uh, Daniel 9.24 crystallizes the end times in one verse and explains it in the three that follow. So um, I'll, I'll try to talk through this quickly, but it says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Now this is to Daniel the prophet while he's in captivity in Babylon. So that is specifically to the Jewish people and to Israel and to Jerusalem, the holy city. So 70 weeks is an equivalent of 490 years. A week in, in Scripture to the Jew is known as a seven-year period. Um, so it says, Seven weeks are determined upon thy holy people to finish the transgression. This means the transgression that they committed that took them into captivity in Babylon in the first place. It also talks about the transgression that they would commit in rejecting Jesus Christ as Messiah. Um, it says, And make an end of sins and make reconciliation for iniquity. Now, that is speaking of Jesus Christ. Only he could do that. Only he did that on the cross when he paid the price for our sins. Um, And then it says, And to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision of prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Everlasting righteousness here is referring to the millennial reign of Jesus over the Jewish people. To anoint the most holy is talking of Jesus Christ. But what are they anointing the most holy for? He's already understood as the most holy here, meaning he's already the savior to the world. But they're anointing the most holy to be king. He will only be king during that thousand-year millennial reign over the Jewish people. And then it says to seal up the vision and prophecy, meaning all the vision and prophecy in Scripture. Not only what Daniel has shown, but everything will be sealed up uh, before that millennial reign begins. So go to, to 925. It says... Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks. Now they are in Babylon. Um, The the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians when they took them into captivity. So this is almost 70 years later, about 538 to 536 BC, when Cyrus, the king of Babylon, says you can go home and begin to rebuild. But they don't actually do that. The Jewish people go home, and they don't rebuild the the temple and the city. They basically just live there. Um, So in 445 BC, Artaxerxes, the son of Cyrus, um, is really the one that gives the commandment and the means. Um, He puts the government, the Babylonian government, behind the Jewish people to actually begin to build the temple, the second temple, and restore Jerusalem. Um, he says, uh, the rest of the verse says, And threescore and two weeks the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. So that first seven weeks is, is 49 years. That's the time it takes them to really build the temple and begin to rebuild Jerusalem. And it says in troublous times, it, it's talking, if you read in Nehemiah and Ezra, it talks about how much trouble the Jewish people had in returning to their homeland and trying to rebuild it. They fought... Uh, They fought the Persians during that time. They had corruption throughout. Uh, It was a constant struggle. 
So that uh, scripture was fulfilled. So um, uh, 9.26 says this. And after three score and two weeks shall the Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. So this is giving the next 62 weeks, or the next 434 years, I believe, um, of time frame. And at the end of that time, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will die on the cross. Daniel's 70 weeks gives the timing to the Jewish people in years of when Jesus will actually die on the cross. For those who were watching, um, they would have known when Jesus' ministry began. When John the Baptist, his forerunner, came and when his ministry began, they would have known. If they were truly reading the scripture and understood these prophecies, they would have known who Jesus was when he began his ministry. They would have known that there was only three and a half years left before he'd be crucified. If you want, and I won't get into the weeds here, you can actually begin to take this prophecy and backdate it um, with the writings of what Herod commanded to go and, and kill all the, the, the newborns um, under the age of two. And you can approximate within, I would say, a day or two, the actual birth date of Jesus. That's how accurate the prophecy is. In 360-year days from the time that Artaxerxes gives the decree to the time that Jesus dies is the exact number of days that are in a 360-year. It works out to the day. So it is a type for us to watch and be sober about the coming and the prophecies that are written to the church just as they were written to the Jewish people. That's how accurate the word of God was. Um, Okay, so slide five. Um, This is a picture of, uh, we're still in verse 26, but this is a picture of the Romans coming to destroy the second temple in 70 AD. All right? Um, It says this in in the middle part of 926 of Daniel. And the people of the prince, notice the little p here, that shall come and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Um, That is referring to Titus, who was the son of Vespasian the emperor, which made him a prince. Uh, He was to come and quell the rebellion. Uh, The rest of the verse, 926 says, And the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. So this is speaking to the time frame after Jesus dies, okay? The first 69 weeks are fulfilled when Jesus dies. But this gives us another time frame, another proof of where um, the Jewish people are in prophetic time. It gives us 70 AD. Only in 70 AD could this verse be completely fulfilled because Titus comes He ends up destroying the temple. He defiles the temple before he destroys it. Um, Titus came, a little bit of background. The the Romans had been fighting uh, with uh, a rebellion that was going on in Jerusalem for about four years. And it kind of just came to a head. Um, They sent Titus because they were sick of going there trying to, to fix things. So Titus was supposed to come and just do the political thing his father sent him to do and just get the Jews to behave, okay? But they continued to fight the Romans and fight the Romans um, and in fight with each other. And it brought up in, um, it, it brought up in Titus uh, an antichrist spirit, if you will, where he, he gains a hatred for the Jewish people. And what Titus does is he surrounds the city, barricades them in, starves them for months. And then when he thinks that they're weak and starved enough, he goes in and finishes them off. They estimate about 1.1 million Jews were killed during this time in 70 AD. So they destroy the temple. And it says, with the end of this war, desolations are determined. The desolations that are determined is all the time frame from 70 AD until the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Those desolations is the time period that Israel would be scattered throughout the world, the Jewish people. So if we look at, um, if we go to slide six, Luke 21, 
24 says, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That happened in 70 AD. That's when they were uh, either killed or enslaved or just scattered throughout the world. Uh, also, Romans uh, 11.25 says, uh, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And what that is really talking about is Israel has to be blind so that Jesus can graft in the church, right? We're grafted into the vine. The Gentiles are given their shot through grace and through salvation to have a part of what the Jewish people have had. So that's what these two verses of Scripture fulfill. And so at the end of the, at that time, these two things um, occur. The, um, the enslavement, the scattering of the Jewish people. Um, I want to read to you an excerpt from Josephus, who was a, a Jewish historian, but he was also a Roman citizen. And of his account of 70 AD, he wrote this. He says, to give a detailed account of their outrageous conduct, he's speaking of the Jewish people, is impossible. But we may sum it up by saying that no other city has ever endured such horrors, and no generation in history has fathered such wickedness. In the end, they brought the whole Hebrew race into contempt in order to make their own impiety seem less outrageous in foreign eyes and confess the painful truth that they were slaves, the dregs of humanity, and outcasts of their nation. And that fulfilled where the Jews were up until um, the turn of the last century. So Daniel 9.27 finishes the prophecy. And... Um, we won't get into this too much tonight, but just to finish off and give you an idea of, of why this is important. It says, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Now, this is speaking of the future Antichrist. Part of the reason why Titus is mentioned in 926 is to give a type of the Antichrist, which Titus was. Before him, uh, the king of Syria was. They both committed what is called the abomination of desolation, which was to go in and defile the temple, to hate the Jewish people so much that all they wanted to do was eradicate them. And that's what both of these men did. But when it says, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, there's only two people in the previous scriptures, Jesus and Titus, that are talked about. Jesus is not the fulfillment of this covenant because his covenant isn't stipulated by one week or seven years. His covenant is eternal. Titus didn't make a covenant or didn't make a treaty with the Jewish people. He went to destroy them. So neither one of them uh, can fulfill the scripture. It says, and in the midst of the week, he, this future Antichrist, shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. That is speaking of a temple, a rebuilt third temple in the future where they will be sacrificing to God the Jewish people. And so this future Antichrist will make a covenant. Three and a half years later, he'll come in, set himself up in the temple as God, and um, cause him to stop sacrificing. And it says, For the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, meaning Jerusalem, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So that's just saying consummation, meaning the end of the tribulation or the end of the prophecy. So, if we can go to slide eight, that gives kind of a picture of the 70 weeks. That first gray bar is the first seven weeks where they are told to go and rebuild the temple. Um, then they have another 62 weeks until Jesus dies. Uh, we're given 70 AD as an important date. And then the prophecy stops. Between 926 of Daniel and 927 of Daniel is over 2,000 years and counting. This is the leap in prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. So the 70th week is the last seven years promised to the Jewish people that has not yet been fulfilled. Why this is so important to the church is many people will say, well, I'm, I'm mid-trib or I'm post-trib or I'm whatever trip. The Bible says that 
The, the church will not be here to endure the tribulation. The tribulation is meant for the Jewish people. It will perfect them. It will bring them into acceptance and realization of who Jesus Christ is, that he is their Messiah. It will take those first three and a half years for them to begin to believe it. And it will take the latter three and a half years for them to be persecuted to the point where they understand what has just happened. And that is the 70th week of Daniel, um, which many people refer to as the tribulation. But that gives the picture. So both the Jewish people have their promise and both the church has their promise. And these four, four verses. We're somewhere waiting for that 70th week to begin when we'll be raptured and that prophecy will be fulfilled. Um, so let me, uh, let's jump to slide nine. Now, if, if I were, I'm, I'm actually doing this in three parts. I'm, I'm teaching again next Wednesday and I believe December 2nd. And all three of them pertain to Israel. Tonight we'll go through um, past and present. And then the next two lessons will be on the future prophecy of Israel. Um, but I want to give a picture to you of just how miraculous the, the regathering of the Jewish people really is. Um, it began in uh, the late 1800s when uh, Zionists, like the, the person up there, uh, Theodore Herzl, wrote a book saying, in order to solve the, the problem of worldwide anti-Semitism and to solve the problem of Jews scattered throughout the world, it is time to organize to bring the Jewish people back to their homeland. That's what happened at the end of the 1800s. Um, and so he organized the first Zionist Congress to do that. And uh, by 1903, about another 35,000 Jews came from Russia and Yemen to Israel. Now, there were already some Jews living there. Um, but for the most part, the, the big immigrations to Israel began at the end of the 18th, uh, 1800s. So the next significant thing is, if we go to slide 10, is World War I. I have this up here, and I, I have the slides organized this way. Is as Americans, we, we look through the lens of America, right? We see things in American terms. When something happens in the world, we think, how is we as Americans see or understand or think about this? Same is true of Europeans, Asians, take your pick. But time, especially in the last hundred years, is all about how God sees his people, the Jews. Right? He also sees the church in there, but he still has these promises that he made to the Jewish people of how he is going to bring them back to Israel. Now, in World War I, it's hard to see that, but Turkey, or the Ottoman Empire, occupies what they called Palestine, what the, what the Romans renamed Israel as Palestine. Um, so the Turks keep that land for 400 years, the Ottoman Empire reigned. Um, but at the, uh, in 1917, the Brits defeat the Turks in World War I uh, at the battle, um, or on the battleground of Armageddon, where the future Armageddon War will be fought. Um, the Turks lose to the Brits. And so, if we go to uh, slide 11, um, Jerusalem is finally liberated by the British, and the British get a mandate over uh, Palestine or over Israel. So, two things happen. The first is the general that conquered the Turks, uh, General Allenby, he makes a uh, proclamation. He places the city under martial law, and he says that we will protect all the holy sites in all of Jerusalem and all of Israel so that all three major religions can come and worship there. Now, this is under Turkish control, or was, which meant only, really, the Muslims had access to these sites. But what Allenby did was he opened up and gave access to uh, the Jewish people and also the Christian people that lived in Jerusalem. At, in the same year... Um, Lord Balfour, he was called the, uh, made a declaration called the Balfour Declaration, uh, declaration in 1917. And the British government basically said that His Majesty's government view the favor 
uh, view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. Basically, the British were saying, it's time to allow Jews come, to come home to Israel and have their home back. Um, both uh, Allenby, General Allenby and Lord Belfort were Christians. And by 1919, another, uh, uh, the population had grown to about 56,000 uh, Jews. By the time uh, 1939 takes place, five major immigrations of people from around the world come back to Israel. Uh, they call it Aliyah. So, if we go to slide 12. In 1939, there were 17 million Jews. Uh, by the end of 1945, there were 11. Of course, this was because of the Holocaust. Um, and this fulfills Ezekiel 37 in prophecy. Ezekiel 37 really is about um, the nation of Israel uh, or the people of, of Israel destroyed. And how can they regain life? How can the nation of Israel ever be born out of the Holocaust? Um, Ezekiel 37, 9-10 says, Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Um, and all of Ezekiel is about the valley of dry bones. Um, Whether Ezekiel actually saw the Holocaust or not, I don't know. But what he sees is a nation or a people almost destroyed. Um, so let's go to slide 13. This is the, the woman of Revelation 12. Uh, I'll read the first verse. It says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. And she, be, she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. Now, Revelation 12 is all about Israel. 12 is the number of Israel. Here she has 12 crowns, 12 stars that represent the 12 tribes. Um, but really what she is, is a picture of Israel spiritually through all of time. She's standing on the moon, and the moon is a reflection of the sun, reflects the sun's light. In that way, the Old Testament reflects the, uh, the New Testament. It's a type and shadow. So that, that uh, vision of the moon that is seen here is talking of the law age that brought the Jewish people to where they were um, at the end of it. Uh, her being clothed with the sun is the brightness and glory that Jerusalem will be during the millennial reign. It's really God ruling over the people of Israel. So it's their very beginning to their very end. Remember the, in 926 we read about, um, or in 924 of Daniel we read about uh, anointing the most holy. Well, that goes from the beginning of the prophecy all the way to the millennial reign. What is most important to the Jewish people in, in prophecy is that coming millennial. Um, so that's the type that John sees here. And it says... She's with child, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered, um, meaning that she's pregnant. In the spiritual context, she's pregnant with the word of God, okay? She's pregnant with the prophets that would bring the word of God to the people of Israel, um, spiritually, prophetically speaking. But if we go to slide 14 in, in Isaiah 66, 7, you see this again. It says, before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. There's something called in, in, uh, in birth, they call it after pains, where a woman can have her baby very quickly, and the majority or the worst of her pain comes after childbirth because of the contraction that's going on in the body. Um, very rare, but it does happen. It is a medical term. So what Isaiah is seeing here in, in uh, prophecy is, it says... Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she delivered a man-child. Israel births the man, Jesus Christ. That's what it's saying here. Now, 
why does she, um, why is she travailing after the birth? Because she's not travailing for the birth of Jesus, right? When Jesus is born, Satan goes about to destroy the Jewish people because they brought forth Jesus Christ. So all the persecution of the Jewish people really begins after uh, the birth of Christ. Um, and so 66.8 says, Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. So her travail had to occur in the Holocaust and in the scattering of, of the people before uh, the birthing. This is a picture of how... Um, when the Jewish people are decimated at the end of the Holocaust, it's like, how will they ever become what they're going to become in prophecy? Um, so all of this regathering is bringing forth of the children of Israel. Uh, that's what Isaiah is seeing here. So when it says that she brought forth in one day or a nation will be born at once, that is a very close approximation to exactly what happened to Israel. People refer to it as a nation born in a day for this reason, for this scripture um, when they began to negotiate uh, the Uni through the United Nations, it was a matter of months in 1947, uh, I'm sorry, 1948, that the Jewish nation actually became the Jewish nation. So if we go to slide 15, before, uh, before 1948, there's about 650,000 Jews that have immigrated to Israel. That's about a 12-fold jump from, um, from the First World War. Um, between 47 and 51, another 700,000 Jews come to Israel. Um, and about 680,000 of those were Holocaust survivors. Um, but when Israel is reborn, uh, part of the quote up there is from uh, General George Marshall. He says, what are you doing um, if you declare yourselves a state, you will be destroyed tomorrow, basically. He's saying you, you'll all be dead. I think he gives them 10 to 15 days. Um, but the nation of Israel is reconstituted basically in a day, fulfilling what Isaiah prophesied. Um, I want to read two quotes to you that are very interesting, that kind of give some flavor, if you will, to how significant it was that... Um, Israel was reborn. Um, a doctor, uh, Dr. Albright from John Hopkins University, um, uh, who was a professor of Semitic language, said, no other phenomenon in history is quite as extraordinary as the unique event represented by the restoration of Israel. At no other time in world history, so far as it is known, has a people been destroyed and then come back after a lapse of time and reestablished itself. It is utterly out of the question to seek a parallel for the recurrence of Israel's restoration after 2,500 years. Um, Dr. Charles Krauthammer, which I'm, I'm sure some of you will recognize, a commentator and a writer, said, Israel is the very embodiment of J the Jewish uh, continuity. It is the only nation on earth that inhabits the same land, bears the same name, speaks the same language, worships the same God it did 3,000 years ago. So it is miraculous that Israel was reborn in the way that it was reborn. Um, but it is even more miraculous that Israel survives. Uh, if you go to six, slide 16, what they called the War of Independence begins within hours of their declaration of a nation. Um, they declare on May 14th, War begins on May 15th. Um, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, all plan to invade. When the, when the war starts, um, and it lasts in 1949, but when the war starts, there's about 10,000 trained uh, military people, what they call the Israeli Defense Forces in Israel. Uh, so they're outnumbered by about two to one, really. And they don't even really have enough weapons to fight with the 10,000 that they have. Um, but 
against superior numbers and superior forces and weaponry, Israel survives the year out. And they win the war at the beginning of 1949. By that time, they had 100,000 trained to fight. Um, of course, Israel probably would not have survived um, without some help from America, who was the only one that came to its defense and stood by it when it declared itself a nation. But it was God who protected Israel, right? I mean, America could not get there in time to get them what they needed. Um, Politically, yes, they were behind them, but it took a long time to get them up to speed. They were basically uh, like a militia fighting, fighting armies. Um, it, there's, there's a number of prophecies that relate to the rebirth of Israel. Uh, one is uh, really the, the ninth chapter of Amos. But 9.15 says, And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Um, that means no matter how many people come and tell them uh, that they're going to share their land, God already said they're not. They're not going to be pulled up out of Israel again. Um, so if you go to 17, um, this was the next conflict, the Six-Day War of Significance, uh, the 1967 war. Um, again, Israel is vastly outnumbered this time. Yes, they're trained. Yes, they have some weapons. But basically, um, they should be wiped out. In six days, Israel wins not only the war, but takes more land mass than it ever had. I believe it was like 50% more uh, mass. I'm sorry, more than that. Um, if you look over here, this uh, greener shade is the Sinai Peninsula. It is uh, what is owned by Egypt. Up at the top is the Golan Heights, uh, Syria. Egypt and Syria have always been the two main antagonists of Israel. Um, there wasn't much of a war to fight if those two nations weren't involved. But what Israel takes is the land they need to secure themselves, plus they take uh, the city, Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip, which is on the Mediterranean up there. Um, but what's so important here is, not only did they give themselves a lot of space between them and Egypt, but at the top of the map, you see the Golan Heights. Israel um, is at sea level in Tel Aviv on the left, and then it rises up into the mountains. Basically, without that high ground, which you can see a lot, a far ways into Syria, I understand. Um, without that high ground, they were unable to defend themselves, really, from any other attacks. Um, so when they take the Golan Heights, it is significant for their uh, strategic well-being. Um, and they win that war in six days. After that war, another 200,000 Jews immigrate to, uh, to Israel, mostly from developed nations uh, like Europe and even the United States. Uh, in slide 18, you see uh, the Yom Kippur War of 73. Again, this is a surprise attack. It occurs on uh, the holiest day for the Jews, uh, Yom Kippur. And the Egyptians and the Syrians um, surprise attack them, and they make some minimal gains, but uh, they fight them to a stalemate uh, in 73. What's significant about all this is, if you go to 19, in 1978, um, finally, it is time to make peace with, uh, Israel to make peace with its neighbors. And the problem before that had been that many of the Arab nations um, simply would not allow that to happen. Um, a lot of the terrorism in the world uh, at that time was to prevent moderate Muslim nations from making friends with Israel. Uh, and so terrorism occurred throughout the Middle East, not only against Israel, but also against other uh, would-be allies. But in 1978, Israel trades much of their gains in the Six-Day War for peace. And so they give back the Sinai Peninsula and they give back part of the Golan Heights, but not all of it, not what they really need to defend themselves, to make peace with Egypt and Syria. And that peace treaty is even in effect today. It's what has kept those nations uh, from not warring. Um, okay, so the next big thing, slide 20, is the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. 
After this, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, an estimated 900,000 Jews move in from uh, the nations of Eastern Europe and Russia into uh, Israel. So it's a major boost um, into the, uh, the population. Um, in the 13 years that followed the Holocaust, uh, the Jewish population grew by about a million. It then took another 38 years for it to grow another million. Um, but the most recent statistics are there's about 6.2 million Jews in Israel today. They comprise 75% of the population of Israel. Um, among those um, religious Jews, uh, they are having many, many children. Um, and so the population of the Jewish people is starting to explode and actually have a positive rate, unlike most developed nations do. Um, I think the U.S. is something like 2, or maybe it's 2.2, or maybe it's less today. But most developed nations are there or lower. Um, Israel is, is higher. Um, so what changed? If we go to slide 21, the Arab Spring begins in... Maybe I have that out of order. Um, slide 21, can you back up one? There we go. Thank you. Uh, the Arab Spring begins in December of 2010. Why is that significant? Many of the nations that had peace treaties or were kind of behind the peace treaties of a nation like Egypt began to be destabilized during this time of political unrest. That's a picture of Egypt's Tahrir Square where um, the Egyptian government was overthrown in um, 2011. And so it has since stabilized, and their peace with Israel has remained, but this has uh, destabilized the entire uh, region. Um, it's destabilized Syria, Saudi Arabia, to some degree Jordan. Um, there were overthrows in Tunisia, Yemen, Egypt, and Libya, which led to the September 11 attacks in 2012 in Benghazi, Libya, where we lost an ambassador and three other Americans. Those were all part of this uprising. That was kind of the culmination of it. Um, and so the Middle East, over just the last few years, has begun to destabilize at an exponential rate. Um, from that 78, year 78 up until 2010, things are pretty much status quo. The people there, the leaders there, not great people, dictators, but they were true to their peace agreement with Israel. Um, so let's go to slide 22 uh, and, uh, and Joel uh, chapter 2 where it talks about the blood moon. I wanted to just bring this in a little bit to give, I know there's been a lot of talk about the blood moons. Um, in Joel uh, 21, uh, I'm sorry, I can't see it there. Maybe I can see it. There we go. 231 says, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Now what Joel is speaking of, the great and terrible day of the Lord, the great day was when Jesus came as Messiah. That was the great day of the Lord. The terrible, of the day, terrible day of the Lord will come at the second coming when Jesus comes to judge the wicked. Um, that will be the terrible day of the Lord. It does not have anything to do with the rapture, really, um, which I have heard recently that a lot of people thought it did. However, if we go to slide 23, when they found this blood moon tetrad, they call it, four blood moons in an approximation of time falling on Jewish feast days. Whenever that occurred in history, something bad usually happened for the Jewish people. Either some type of persecution or something would occur. Um, and so there's been a lot of talk about this. I know there's been a lot of people that have... Um, I know uh, Pastor Mark Blitz, a guy who writes books and TV, found this. Um, Pastor John Hagee down in Texas has written books on this. So it's gotten a lot of mainstream Christian uh, people thinking along these lines. Um, why is it significant? It's significant in the, in the fact that we know what happened in previous history when blood moons occurred. In ancient Israel... The only way that um, 
they knew the next, the next month or when to have a feast was by the moon. They had to see the moon so that they knew what the next day was so that they could have the feast if a feast was scheduled then. Um, so they did their time by the sun and the moon, right? Um, just as God had set it up. Um, so when they would see these signs in the sky, it would tell them something, um, sometimes related to prophecy. But in previous blood moon tetrids, where blood moons occurred on feast days, um, if you go back in history, two of the wars that we just talked about occurred in those years. In 1948 and again in 1967, there were four blood moon tetrids. Um, you can keep going back. Uh, the Spanish Inquisitions, where uh, the Jews were exiled and persecuted in Spain, occurred in, I think it was 1492, same thing occurred. So to give this any credence, the blood moons, in today's uh, understanding of prophecy can only be seen with hindsight. We can only look at them and say, okay, this occurred. Did something bad occur with Israel? And over the last couple of years, it's very interesting what has happened in Israel. Um, if we go to slide 24, this is a, a picture of... Um, a town in the Ukraine, Donetsk. When the Russians invaded Ukraine a couple years ago, um, they were very hostile. Some of the separatists were very hostile to the Jewish people. They told them that they would have to register their property or have it confiscated. Um, so there's a very large population of the Jewish people that are in, obviously, the Ukraine, but in this town, who have since considered leaving, and I know some of them have uh, from, from reports, um, so a rise in anti-Semitism corresponds to April of 2014. Um, the Israel-Gaza war begins in August of 2014, um, only, only a year or so ago. Um, it was the biggest conflict between uh, the Palestinians and the Israeli army in uh, the last decade. Uh, probably... Um, they say about 4,500 rockets were fired from the Gaza Strip, which was that little piece of land on the Mediterranean, into Israel. Um, Israel retaliated, um, and they said about 2,200 Palestinians died in the ground and the air invasion that they did over the course of a couple of months. More significant than that, than the war uh, with the Palestinians, was world opinion has really begun to slide against Israel. Um, they are reported negatively in the news. Um, everything seems to be tilted with a Palestinian bias. Um, there's countless reports. I don't have any, any of them up there. But if you want to jump to slide 25, it, it's uh, one of the uh, Israeli rockets that intercepts um, incoming fire from Gaza. But um, it's been an acceleration of anti-Semitic um, opinion towards the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. Um, in, or in, uh, in, in the last year, if we go to slide 26, there have been an increasing number of anti-Semitic attacks all over the world. Um, Europe, the U.S., Canada... Uh, there was one where they painted up houses and cars in Madison, Wisconsin, less than a year ago. Uh, swastikas and what have you. That's somewhere in Europe, says Adolf was right, kill the Jews. There's been increasing protests like this reported throughout Europe. They said a rise of at least almost 40% from the, the previous uh, sample in, in 2009 has occurred in just a year. Um, add to that the influx of Muslim immigrants coming into Europe, and there's already a reports that that is bringing more anti-Semitism in, not only from Muslim extremists, but from the Nazi party, the neo-Nazi party, which is, you know, a small group of uh, nuts in Europe, if you will. But they're... Um, their anti-Semitism is, is aimed at both the incoming Muslims and the Jewish people. Um, so it's giving a rise in, you know, in every developed nation where there are Jewish people. Um, I think it's uh, France that has the current largest European population of the Jews. 
and there's a lot of talk um, being written about how many Jews are going to leave France because of it. That's how bad it's starting to get. Many people have said it's similar to the, um, the zealousness, if you will, of the Nazis prior to World War II. Um, people are comparing it to those times in Europe right now. Um, slide 27 shows um, our president and the prime minister of Israel, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, um, over the course of the last 10 years, um, U.S. and Israeli relations have begun to deteriorate immensely. Unlike any other time in American history, um, the last eight years, and really the last 10 years, has been very negative toward uh, the Jewish people. From, from America, its greatest ally. Um, there he's saying uh, something to the French prime minister about you know, I, you know, you're upset with Netanyahu. He's like, I have to deal with him every day. You know, that's what, what President Obama is saying about the Prime Minister of Israel. Um, so there's a disdain for the nation of Israel, even among our leaders in Washington. Um, add to that the, uh, the Iranian deal, where the United States is shifting its focus toward Iran versus Israel in the Middle East. Um, Israel, or I'm sorry, Iran is the greatest sponsor of terrorism in the world. Um, and not only will they likely have nuclear weapons soon, they uh, will be given $150 billion that was frozen, uh, which is about a fourth of their economy uh, by the U.S. So they will have a lot of money to fund terrorism in the next few years. Uh, slide 28 shows, I'm sure many of you have heard in the news, the rise of ISIS. This is significant uh, for a few reasons. Iraq and Syria, which ISIS controls much of both countries right now, but many of the experts are saying that Iraq and Syria will no longer exist in the borders that we understand them to because of the amount of fighting that has gone on there um, and how it has destroyed those nations. Um, it's likely that going forward, they will be forever changed. Um, Russia has moved in to defend Syria against extremists, uh, saving the Assad regime for who knows how long uh, in Syria, um, which was on the brink of collapse a month ago. I mean, it was months away from Syria being overrun by ISIS and other groups, um, which is significant. Uh, Russia has not been in the Middle East in any... Uh, noticeable way since it left Egypt in 1970-something. Um, so, all of that is to give a picture of uh, the regathering of the nation of Israel, uh, but also part of where we are currently in time. If we, if we go to slide 29, um, that blue line is... I drew that, so it's hard to really know what it's saying. Um, but that, that blue line is, in Egypt, it's the Nile River. In Syria and Iraq, it's the Euphrates River. It's the land that God promised to Abraham in Genesis 15. It's the land that Israel has never completely held. Um, and it's a prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. So when we talk next week, we'll be talking about um, how do we get there from here. Um, and I think... Part of the reason to understand this is we know that Israel is significant. It gives us a place and time of where the church is. We know the rapture is coming soon. Um, we don't know the timing. We're not given the timing like Daniel was given uh, in, in to the death of the Messiah. But we are given an awful lot of prophecy that says you are living in the season of the end times and these things are happening. And when they happen, we'll be able to look back in hindsight and say, okay, this prophecy has been fulfilled. That prophecy has been fulfilled. We are one step closer to the rapture of the church. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5, 4-6 says, uh, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that day, that day should overtake you as a thief. 
Ye are all children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. What are we watching and being sober for if there isn't prophecy telling us where we are in time? Um, I often teach this lesson as where is the church in time? You know, what's happened, what's going to happen? Um, And so once you begin to understand how um, the Jewish people and the promises to them and the church collide in scripture, um, you start to understand in a linear fashion, if you will, um, how all this stuff is supposed to unfold. Uh, That is probably the, the biggest challenge in understanding prophecy is to put it in our linear thinking because God didn't put it in linear thinking all the time, right? He put it that way so that through study and the Holy Spirit and through proving the word of God that we could come to understanding in the word of God. He didn't just throw it out there for anybody to understand and take and corrupt and twist and turn. To the church, to the bride, um, to mature Christians like yourselves, this, uh, this comes with study and understanding. It's not, it's not that hard to understand once you begin to get into it and God begins to say, yes, this is right. No, that's wrong. Yes, this is right. The scripture is perfect in each and every way. You cannot err in scripture. Um, we can only err in understanding, all right? And the scripture is, um, the, the word of God is perfect. And what Paul is saying here in the Thessalonians is, yes, he is coming as a thief in the night, but he's not coming as a thief in the night to us, the bride of Christ. The world will be unknowing, uncaring, unsuspecting when that day comes. But we as the bride of Christ will know just how close we are. And I think that's why um, this is so important and why um, I certainly have a heart to want to teach it. Next time we're going to look at, uh, next week Wednesday, we're going to look at uh, the coming Israeli-Arab conflict that will make that map up their reality. Um, so with that, I'll turn it back over to Pastor Kylie. I certainly thank you for your time, and I will um, be around. So if anyone has any questions for me, feel, feel free to ask me. Tonight's not the forum to do that, but um, catch me in the hall or somewhere and ask me, because I know I covered a lot, and there's always questions. So thank you for your time. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.